Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up, as in the heat of the summer, Salah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Salah. Those are the first five verses of Psalm 32, which along with Psalm 30 are the psalms appointed for today, Saturday, March the 5th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. Continuing our look in the uh, seventh chapter of Deuteronomy today, verses 17 to 26. Um, We're also in the gospel, according to John chapter 1, verses 43 to 51, and in Paul's letter to Titus, chapter 3, the first 15 verses. So remember the context for um, Moses' speech here. It's his valedictory address. It's before his death. Deuteronomy is, is everything that he has to say to the people before his death. And so what he's doing is giving instructions for how to live in the land, but not just that, but how to enjoy it long term. And there's only one way to do that, and that's to follow and keep the commandments of God and listen to him in everything that you do. He said, if you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? Which they've already said. (laughs) They said that earlier in the wilderness when the spies came back, they decided that they, they were not able to take the land under their own power, which was actually the point. You're not. It's not up to you to take the land. It's up to you to do and follow the Lord, and he'll take care of all your problems for you as far as possessing the land is concerned. He said, you shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. How the, na- how the group, the nation, the whatever you want to call them, how they could possibly have forgotten that in the first generation for whom this was like 30 days prior, and they had seen all this stuff play out over the course of about a year in Egypt, that it's amazing that that group didn't understand this, didn't understand that the Lord had provided for them in the wilderness. He had provided water. He had provided manna. He had shown up at Mount Sinai. He had gotten them through the Red Sea. He had drowned Pharaoh's army. He had done all these things along the way, and yet somehow or another, they thought it was up to them to conquer the land by themselves without God. And so Moses is encouraging the people to remember that, that which happened 40 years before, which is something most of these people had never seen before. They'd grown up in the wilderness because, what, remember, the decree was that the, all the, those from 20 years old and up were not going to make it. He said, so remember those things, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. I mean, if he got you out of Egypt, if he took care of Pharaoh, the mightiest nation on earth, if he took care of them, don't you think he could probably take care of these enemies that you're facing now, these smaller tribal things? So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you're afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. So God's taking care of everybody. Anybody who tries to hide themselves from you, he's taking care of all those people. You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. 
the Lord your God will clear away all these nations before you little by little, not all at once. You may not make an end of them at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. So in other words, if you've come in and you conquer the land and it conquers all at once, before you can colonize the land and, and take over the land, then the wild beasts would become too numerous for you. And so you're going to get it little by little so that um, you're, what you conquer, you also occupy. But the Lord your God will give them over to you, uh, the, the um, opponents, and throw them into great confusion until they're destroyed. And he will give their kings into your hand, and you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you've destroyed them. You know, that, that's an encouraging promise. It, it's a strong statement. Moses is in. I mean, you see from this how deeply Moses believed, how deeply he believed that God was with them and, and with God by going out under his banner, they could accomplish anything because God would do what it took because he made a promise and a covenant. And so he would do what he promised so long as they would cooperate and do what they were asked to do. The carved images of their gods, you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the gold or the silver that's on them, or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it, for it's an abomination to the Lord your God. So, so don't, don't strip that stuff off of those idols. No, burn it all. Put it all in the fire, because otherwise it's a snare. And what it's saying to you is we have great value for this, and what he's saying is, no, leave it alone. It's contaminated because of what it was. And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it's devoted to destruction. And it's, there, there's a huge temptation, obviously. If you find an idol, if you recover an idol, and, it, and it's got gold and silver on it, well, you know, hey, I got something worthwhile here. But what, what God's saying through Moses here is, is that anything you touch like that, whatever, any of those things, those things are devoted to destruction, and, and therefore they've been, that gold and that silver is contaminated by the worship of that idol. And so it's part of the idol, so you got, you got to stay away from that, and you got to get rid of it. I know the temptation is there, and I know that it would be a wonderful thing to have the, the income from the sale of that gold or silver, but no, you can't, not that particular gold and silver. In the gospel, it says the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. So what was the next day? Well, so one day we had John pointing and saying, look, the Lamb of God, two of John's disciples, including Andrew, and we think John as well, followed Jesus, spent the night where he stayed. And then the next day, Andrew went and got Peter. So now we're talking about the following day. So the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. In other words, he's saying to, to, to Nathanael the same thing that, um, that Andrew said to Peter. And so these guys are all from the same area. And so he's saying the same thing. We found the Messiah. And he's saying exactly the same thing. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and all the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, uh, Andrew had better sense about how to phrase that. We found the Messiah. And here, Philip goes further and says, it's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And that's the, the point that many, many 
of the Pharisees and other people are going to make it, and that is, is that where, where does it say anywhere that the Messiah comes from the Galilee or from Nazareth? Where, where is it? But he was born in Bethlehem. And so that's the important thing. It's not where he's where he lived. It was where he was, quote, from, where he was born. And so Nathaniel asked the same question. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, you look at the scriptures and you tell me where anything good comes out of Nazareth. Philip said to him, come and see. I mean, it, Philip didn't didn't wrestle with him and fight the objection and, and cite, you know, nine million scriptures. He just says, come and see this guy. If you do that, you'll see and you'll believe. So Jesus sees Nathanael coming towards him and says to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there's no deceit. It's an interesting way of saying that because remember, Israel is, is actually began as a proper name. It's one who fights with God, right? So that's that name was given at the Jabbok, the Jabbok River, as Jacob and his retinue, his two wives, Leah and Rachel, and their children and the maids and everybody else are coming back from where they had been with Laban. And they're coming back, and now he's heard that his brother Esau, who last he had heard wanted to kill him, is coming out to meet him. And so he retreats and goes back across the Jabbok and stays there, and then an angel comes and wrestles with him. And and he changed his name because he wrestled with God. He changed his name from Jacob to Israel. And so when Jesus says, an Israelite in whom there's no deceit, it's an interesting turn of phrase because Jacob— slash Israel, Jacob, the name itself, meant deceiver. And so here we have an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. So he, he's been changed from. And so he, what, he, what Jesus is saying is, is that, that there's no pretense about this guy that I see coming to me. And Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you're the son of God, you're the king of Israel. And you can just, you can just imagine the, the smile on Jesus' face and the, the humor that he sees in this, in this moment. And he says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. I mean, you, you just scratch the surface. But what Nathaniel sees is, is that the prophetic ability of Jesus to know him, and he knows you. He knows you intimately. He knows exactly who you are. He knows exactly what your fears are, what your hopes are, what your dreams are. He knows all your past and all your future. And if you'll give it to him, then it'll unfold in a way that you could never imagine. It's the same idea. He knew you before Philip called you under the fig tree wherever that fig tree was for you and whoever that Philip was for you, he knew you and he loved you and he called you to himself. He said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you'll see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, which again harkens back to Jacob because that's exactly what Jacob saw, not as he was coming back to the land, but as he was going away from the land prior to meeting Rachel and Leah, prior to to the nonsense that had to go on with um, with Laban, who cheated him multiple times. But, but he was enriched as he came back. He came back a very wealthy man. He went away alone and came back with a company of peoples with two wives and 12 children, and who knows what else. So this young man who went away on the run by himself in that place now comes back with a full retinue of people. And so Jesus says, though, that 
that what Jacob saw was angels and uh, ascending and descending on a ladder to and from heaven down to that place, which they believe is Jerusalem now. Um, that that that's the holy place. This is the place of God's dwelling. Is what Jacob saw, and so that's what Jesus is saying. You're going to see the same thing, angels ascending and descending, on the Son of Man, because He dwelt among us. And that's exactly what it was. God's dwelling was among man in the form of Jesus. So wherever Jesus was, God was. And he said, you're going to see that. You, you know, you, whether you figuratively or literally see it, it or, is a different question. But what you're going to see is, is where God's dwelling place is. And it's here in me. In the uh, epistle... Paul says, remind them, the congregation in Crete, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So Paul says, tend to your knitting. Keep at the work that you have been given to do. It's a it's not, it's not too much to ask, right? <laughs> be ready for every good work, to be obedient, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, gentleness, perfect courtesy towards all people. He says, for look, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is the way we used to be. But he says, now be this way. You have a choice to make. Be this way. Follow the leading of the Spirit. You're no longer foolish, people. You're no longer being led astray. You're being led out. You're being brought out of all of that in the same kind of an exodus that Moses led the people out of because you were following false gods. Whatever your passions were, whatever your desires were that that were leading you in that direction, those things were false gods. They were idols, no less. And so you're being carried away by those things, but you're no longer those people. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us from all of that stuff, the foolishness, disobedience, being led astray, slaves to passions, all that stuff. You, you were saved from that life, not because of works done by us in righteousness. In other words, not because we had done anything and he found any great pleasure in us because of who we were and what we did. No, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And he says, this saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. If you devote yourself to something, that means you give your all to it. It's a strong word. It's a strong word in Greek as well. And, and it means that you, your life is given over to this. You remember before in the, in the passage from Deuteronomy, he talked about the idols that were devoted to destruction. In other words, that was going to be their end. And so here when it says that we're to devote ourselves to good works, then what it means is, is that in that same way, that is our destiny and it is assured destiny if we will just step into those things. It's what God wants for us, and what he wants for us is to devote ourselves to doing the things that he himself would do if he were here. 
And so we're given over, again, to be representatives and ambassadors of God. We are his hands and feet and his head and his heart into this world. He said these things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. In in other words, what he's saying is don't pay any attention to the Judaizers. Don't bother with that. It's a tar baby, and there's no point. There's no benefit to anybody for engaging in all of that. That is not the apologetic. The apologetic for Christianity is very simple. It's Jesus Christ, him crucified, risen from the dead, ascended to the Father. It's all of that. That is the apologetic. I'm not going to argue with you about the law. I'm not going to argue with you about all those other kinds of things, Paul says. No, that's a waste of my time. It takes away from actually preaching the gospel, and it also confuses people. When, when you spend all your time tied up in those things, it's, it's unprofitable. In fact, it's worse than unprofitable. It's worthless, he says. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once or twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Man, what would the implication for that be in the church? I mean, it is something that, that you don't see very often is doing church discipline, which is to warn somebody, once or twice, he says, and then don't have anything further to do with them. Just walk away from it. Just walk away. Um, and, but, but what it would have to mean is, is that then you let everybody else know, here's what we've done. And it's important that we do those things. It's important that we do church discipline. It's important that we, that we step into anyone who's causing division because there's intended to be unity in the body of Christ. As he is one, we are to be one as well. And anyone who's stirring up division for a non-gospel reason, now, if, if there's a false gospel being preached or taught, then that needs to be, that, that division needs to happen. It's not the same as, as somebody who's just stirring it up over churchmanship, let's say, which, believe it or not, happens a lot, particularly in the Anglican world. So if somebody's stirring up division over inessentials, over churchmanship issues or whatever, then, then warn that person. You know, there's a place probably where you can go that does exactly what you're doing, but we're called to do this. That's the kind of division Paul has in mind. He doesn't have in mind the division of we have to separate ourselves from those people because they're preaching a false gospel. They're preaching Jesus and something else, or they're preaching Jesus as one among many. And so we have to separate ourselves and cause division there. Somebody needs to call that stuff out. But if you're just trying to cause division over worship style or whatever, then no, that's not okay. And you've got to confront that. And then he finishes up with some personal things. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. So when they come, they can take your place and, and give you a break, and you can come here. He says, come to Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter here. And then do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. So they must have been coming through there, and Paul must have known that. See that they lack nothing. In other words, provide everything they need for the continuation of the, of the work that they're doing and where they're going. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. In other words, pay attention to the needs of the congregation in the same way the disciples did or the apostles did after the formation of the church when they appointed the deacons to look after the food distribution. So basically what he's saying is be aware and have all your people be aware of the needs in your congregation so that they can then assist in those situations. He said, all who are with me send greetings to you. 
Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. It's important, very important, that we have faith, that we trust in him, that we understand that whatever obstacles are in front of us in doing the work God gave us to do, he'll take care of all those things in the proper time and in the proper way. It's important for us to to be quick to believe in him and to be strong in our faith in him and that in him all things are possible.